Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we... Bless you, Lord, that we have a day to focus, to think about, to celebrate the incredible hope of of Easter, that Jesus is alive. Lord, this transforms everything about how we see the world and see our own lives and see our future. And uh, Lord, there's so much joy in this this truth. And so I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would... Uh, communicate the wonder of this passage to each soul, each life present here. And Lord, all of this for your glory. Lift our hearts to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is definitely my favorite topic of the whole year, uh, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And and, uh, this week I was just thinking about studying this passage, how big the Bible is. And, you know, if you haven't read through the Bible, it's intimidating. You see there's so many pages and it takes so long to read all that and to understand it. And, uh, And it's buried way toward the back is this page that we just read. And yet in this passage is the decisive moment of God in all history where death is reversed. 
It's incredible. It's this, this, this story that's buried back in that page. And if you read about the earliest Christians, when they went around the Mediterranean uh, telling people about Jesus, the main message they were telling people wasn't actually so much that Jesus had died on the cross, but that he was alive, that he'd been raised from the dead. And uh, there are these uh, people who are persecuted and they're poor and they're living under the brutality of the Roman Empire. And yet historians have said that the thing that marked the earliest Christians was their joy. The things that marked the earliest Christians was their joy. And actually, just this past week, uh, a man named Rich Strutz, who's uh, an elder of a, a, a local church, his children go to school, uh, school in our church's school, was in a, a serious uh, motorcycle accident. He was early in the morning on Mount Baker Highway. He had a head-on collision. Um, you know, a car turned in front of him on his motorcycle, and uh, he dislocated his hip, and he broke his leg in multiple places, and uh, uh, lacerations on his spleen, on his kidneys. He fractured his shoulder. It was very serious. And he was immediately taken down to Harborview, and uh, praise God, he's in stable condition, um, but this will definitely be a, a life-altering accident that he had this week. And when he got to Harborview, to the ER, they gave him uh, ketamine uh, for the pain, and apparently ketamine is different than morphine. The morphine makes you, you know, kind of drowsy and sleepy, but ketamine has this effect that it, it opens up kind of the deepest places of your soul and your subconscious, and you just start talking about whatever's way deep down in there. And a lot of the doctors will say, you hear some dark and scary things that are going on deep inside of people. Well, apparently when you put rich on ketamine, the deepest thing in him that you're going to hear about is the gospel. And he started talking to the nurses and the doctors, and he's telling them all about Jesus and, and what, you know, that Jesus raised from the dead, and they need to hear this. And they'd say, okay, all right, we heard the, about Jesus, and we need to talk about your injuries now. And he'd say, stop changing the subject. You need to hear about this. And so the nurses told his, uh, his, his wife later, okay, well, we know about the gospel now. And um, I was talking to Diana Lim, who's the head of our school, and she said about Rich that in his darkest, scariest moment probably of his whole life, when all his inhibitions were down, the thing that poured out of him was the gospel. The deep joy that even a horrifying accident like this couldn't touch was the hope of Easter. And that's a question for all of us, is do we have something in us, a joy, that is so deep that it doesn't matter what comes into our life? That's what would come out of us. Well, today, as we uh, study these verses about the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to talk about that joy that's both the turning point of all history and was also what poured out of rich in that emergency room. And so we're going to look at this passage by answering just three simple questions. What is the joy of Easter? Who is it for? And how can we have it? What is the joy of Easter? Who's that joy for? Who does God give that joy to? And how can we have that joy in our lives? And my hope is that each of us would have this giant hope, this deep and profound joy living inside of us. So three questions uh, this morning. The first is this. What is the joy of Easter? Why was Easter such a source of joy to the earliest Christians? And the answer that this passage gives is because Easter is the beginning of a new creation. Easter is the beginning of a new creation. And you see that there in verse 1 where it says, now on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And the mention of the days of the week will bring anyone who's read the Bible back to the opening page of the Bible where it talks about God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. So now this is the first day of a new week. So it's saying a new creation is starting. It also mentions that it was dark when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And that brings you back to the beginning of the Bible where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then, you know, in the creation story in Genesis, it begins in a garden. Adam and Eve were put in a garden, and then Jesus was buried in a garden. And you see that when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus after his resurrection there in verse 15, says, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you, who, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. In the creation story, Adam was a gardener. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the new gardener. And so that's why we say Easter is about the beginning of a new creation. Now you might hear that and you say, what do you mean Jesus' resurrection is a new creation? I mean, those are pretty different things, like the starting of a universe versus a guy coming back to life from the dead. How are those related to each other? Well, the story of the Bible tells us that human history is going to culminate in a final judgment where God will come and rid the whole world of all evil and the whole creation will be renewed. And when you read the story about Jesus, it's interesting. When Jesus dies on the cross, the sky goes dark. The earth shakes, and it's like the final judgment is happening in the middle of history. It was supposed to happen at the end of history, but it happened in the middle. And then Jesus' body is raised from the dead. He's like a little mini creation that is being renewed. And so it's a preview of what's going to happen at the end happens in the middle of the story. And so the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a new creation. The first fruits in the harvest were the fruits that came out first that were a preview to tell you what the harvest was going to be like. And so the preview is Jesus' resurrection of what's going to happen in the future. And it's amazing that the Bible's story is not that God destroys his old creation and makes a new one. You know, maybe some of you have thought that that's what the Bible teaches. That God is one day going to destroy this creation and we're all going to live in a spiritual, our souls will live in a spiritual world someday. The story of the Bible is that God has his new creation burst out in the middle of the old one and transforming the old one. And so as strange as it is that God would make a universe like this in the first place, is equally strange that Jesus' body would be raised from the dead. Now when we understand this, that the joy of Easter is the beginning of a new creation, it it teaches us two things. Okay, first, it teaches us to see the old creation with new eyes. It teaches us to see the old creation because when you realize that God's not going to scrap this world, but he has plans to renew this creation, you see this world that we're living in with fresh eyes, that we're living in the beautiful artwork of a wise and powerful and loving creator. He loves his creation. And this is something that has helped my faith um, many times. You know, for example, one of my uh, favorite foods is uh, grapefruits. Um, I, I love grapefruits. My children love grapefruits. You know, we have all kinds of rules when we buy a bag of grapefruits from Costco. You know, you get a half a grapefruit a day. Otherwise, they're just gone instantly. And it's because we love grapefruits. And there have been times when, as a pastor, I'll have these doubts where I'll say, you know, what if the Bible is just not true? And I'm spending my whole life studying the Bible every day. I'm teaching people about the Bible. I've given my whole life to the Bible. And what if there isn't a God? And this the whole thing is wrong. 
And so then I'll eat a grapefruit. And I, how I, I like to eat grapefruit, you cut them in half and you use a spoon to pull out the wedges. And they're so delicious and refreshing. And I, my favorite thing is I spoon it out and the little wedges are exactly the size of a spoon. And I look at it. It's a work of love. It's all true. I just look at the wedge and I say it's all true. The Bible's the word of God and Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's a perfect logic. And some of you hear that and you say, that is so stupid. That your whole, all your doubts, that's how you deal with your doubts as a pastor and your whole, is by looking at a grapefruit. But once you realize that about the grapefruit, you look up and you realize that you're living in a world filled with that kind of stuff. And, you know, I look at my dog that's like, it's like a stuffed animal that came alive and it licks you and, and, and knows when you're sad and comes and sits by you to make you feel better. Or there's this show on Netflix about this snorkeler who becomes friends with an octopus and they hold hands and stuff like that. And you like, you live in that kind of world where, you know, living stuffed animals and octopus friends. You live in a world where there's snow. Go up to Mount Baker and you ride around on the snow on skis. This is a strange world. Any one of those things, you can look at it and say, this is a work of love. It's all true. The Bible's true and Jesus has been raised from the dead. The logic is perfect. Because if God made such a strange universe like this, he could do the strange thing like raising Jesus from the dead. And so the first thing that the joy of Easter teaches us is to re-see the creation that we're living in, the world that we're living in, is a work of God's love. But second, it also, Easter also teaches us to long for a new creation. Even though we are surrounded by wonders like grapefruits, for the majority of people, life is a hard reality. And even some of the most joyful and godly people say things like, I just can't wait to be with Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Joyful, godly people who say, I'm pretty much ready for this to be over and I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to be in this life and in this world anymore. And that's because of our own sin. It's because of the effects of sin on the world. And there's misery and there's suffering in our lives and in other people's lives. And I think one of the verses in the Bible that resonates the most with me, it's from the Apostle Paul in Romans, where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm just like, Yes. Who will deliver me from the, with this body of death? And you see how Easter brings together two of the deepest existential impulses of being human. A delight with the wonders of the creation with a longing to be done with this world. How can two such opposite impulses be reconciled? Wonder at being alive in this creation and I'm ready to be done with this. In the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus, I get to be crucified with him. The wretched man that I am, the body of death, gets to die with him. And yet, that I could be raised with Jesus. You know, it's not that I want to stop existing. It's I want to be renewed. That's the deep longing. And this is precisely the one thing that resonates exactly with the deepest impulses of our soul. And this is what the joy of Easter is. And just to be clear, so you know what the, the promise of the Bible is, the Bible says that if you are in Jesus, what, in Christ, you put your faith in Christ, what God did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead 2,000 years ago, he will do for all the people who are in Christ. And so that means that if you are in Christ, when you die, your body goes in the ground and your soul goes to be with God. But there is coming a day 
when Jesus will come again and renew and restore his whole creation and our souls and bodies will be reunited and we will live in God's good green earth, flooded with his presence forever and ever. That is crazy, wild promise and hope. And when you hear that and you say, well, how could I ever believe something like that? Well, for one, it's already happened once. Jesus' body's already been raised from the dead. That's how we know it can happen in the future. And if you think that's crazy and wild, look at the universe you are listening, living in. This is a crazy and wild universe. If he could make a crazy and wild universe like this, he could do something crazy and wild like raising the dead and reversing death itself. And so it's no wonder that Rich Strutz was saying to the nurses, stop changing the subject. There is no joy, no hope, no love anywhere in the world like what God offers us in the story of Easter. It is the beginning of a new creation that teaches us to see the old creation with new eyes and to long for a new one. And so when we understand that, it leads to our our second question is who is it for? If that's uh, that's what the joy of Easter is, who is the joy of Easter for? Who does God give the joy of Easter to? And uh, throughout the Bible, God's promises are for people who feel on the outside. People who don't share in the comfort and power structures of the present world. People who are excluded, outcasts. God has a heart for these people. And one of the most compelling arguments for the the authenticity and historicity of the Easter stories is that the earliest eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. We're all women. And uh, the New Testament historian N.T. Wright says this, The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses in the ancient world. And in fact, some of the the critics of Christianity would write about that. And they say, how can you believe in Christianity? All the people who witnessed this were women. We don't believe in women. And what, in the eyewitness testimony of women. That's what the world thought. That's not what God thought. That's not what Jesus thought. Mary Magdalene was the first person to encounter the risen Jesus. And you see how this passage that we just read ends in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. These are the disciples who would found the church. They'd write the New Testament. They would start the the most successful religious movement ever in history. And they learned the gospel from this woman. If this story were made up, if this was a hoax made up by the disciples, if they wanted people in the ancient world to believe it, they would have not said, oh, yeah, we learned about this from a woman. Even, it is even surprising that they included this fact in their account. The only explanation is, This is exactly what happened. God in his providence chose Mary to be the primary witness to the resurrection. And this is actually why many women were drawn to Christianity in the early church. Uh, In the Roman Empire, actually, many girl babies would be thrown out. And so there were far more men in the Roman Empire than women. And men couldn't find women to marry. But when you came into the church, it was almost reversed. The church was probably about two-thirds women it's because women were drawn to Jesus. And many of them uh, converted their unbelieving husbands because they knew that even though the world mistreated them, Jesus loved them. 
And actually, by the way, there is some question, like, where are the male disciples in this passage? You see in verse 2 how it says, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to, uh, toward the tomb. Why was Mary at the tomb that morning, but the disciples weren't? Jesus had told them multiple times, I'm going to rise on the third day. You should have, they should have been waiting there. Okay, it's coming anytime. Let's show up there. I'm going to be there first thing in the morning. The person of faith is Mary Magdalene. She's the only person named at the tomb in all four of the gospel records. And so when we say, who is the joy of Easter for? The point is not that it's just for women. The point is the joy of Easter is for those on the margins. If you are a person that feels like you don't fit in, if you feel ignored, if you feel like you're invisible to the world around you, if you feel weak or unwanted, you are the kind of person Jesus Christ tends to call to himself. And in fact, if you're a person who doesn't feel that way, maybe you don't feel weak, maybe you don't feel on the outside, you have to become that if Jesus is going to call you. You have to see your own sin and spiritual deformity. You have to see your inability to love people. You have to humble yourself if you will ever have this joy. And the people who can have the joy of Easter are people who have found that this world is not the place of their deepest joy. So to summarize what we've said so far, what is the joy of Easter? It's the beginning of a new creation that teaches us to open our eyes to this world around us, the kind of world we're living in. And, uh, and it teaches us to long for a new creation. And who is this joy for? It's for those on the margins who feel invisible in the world, but who are chosen by Jesus. And so we know what this joy is and who it's for, but this leaves our final question. How can we have this joy? How can I have this joy? How can you have this joy in your life? And I want to point out two important answers to that question from this passage. First, you can have this joy through a sober-minded faith. You can have this joy for, through a sober-minded faith. That is, you can't understand the resurrection through science or even simply through reason, but only by faith. And I want to explain that to you. You notice there in verse 2, when Mary goes to tell the disciples about the empty tomb, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And according to, uh, to Mary, logic and science say, well, I know that when people die, they don't come back from the dead. So if the tomb is empty, logic says there's only one explanation. Someone came and took the body out of there. So she's taking a scientific approach. But science always, is always based on repeatable experimentation. Some of you know the, uh, the scientific method. What is the scientific method? You make a hypothesis about something, and then you set up a repeatable experiment that you observe, and then you go back and make a new hypothesis that kind of corrects the errors in your first hypothesis, and then you do it again. You need a repeatable experiment. Can you apply that method to the resurrection of Jesus? No. Remember, Easter is about a new creation. It's like the universe it's like a new universe is starting. It's like nature is starting over again. Science can't tell you why nature started. Science is only about what happens in nature. But it can never tell you where nature came from because it would have to operate outside of nature. In the same way, the resurrection of Jesus is something like the beginning of the universe happening. It's a unique event that is not repeatable. 
just like the beginning of the universe is not repeatable. So it can't be understood by science or logic. It can only be understood by faith. But the faith of this chapter isn't an emotional, irrational fanaticism. It's actually, the mentions of faith are very subtle and sober-minded. I want to point them out to you. You see it first in Mary. That even though in verse 2 she says, logic says that someone stole Jesus' body, you notice what she says there in verse 2. They have taken the Lord. That's the first time in the Gospel of John someone calls Jesus Lord. And actually 14 times after this, after Jesus' resurrection, he's going to be called Lord from this point forward. Lord is the name of the risen Jesus. And even though she's like, I don't know where the body went, he is Lord. There is faith in that statement. And then you also see it in, uh, in uh, John himself who wrote this gospel. He's the other. So, so Mary goes out and she goes to these disciples and said, hey, the tomb's empty. Like, come and see him. And so it says Peter and another disciple run there. And they come to the tomb and they see the clothes are laid, in, laid there. And the tomb is empty. And the other disciple who goes with Peter is, is John who's writing this gospel. And it says in verse 8, then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Here is the first mention of someone believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And he didn't fall on the ground, overcome with emotion. It's a sober-minded, he's connecting the dots. And oftentimes, you know, an overly emotional kind of faith burns up really quickly and it's gone. You know, it's kind of like lighting a piece of newspaper on fire. It burns hot really fast, and then it's gone. But when you burn a log, it's going to have a long burn or charcoal or something like that. And um, an enduring faith in some ways is more sober-minded. That's often how people become Christians. They've met reasonable, honest, and sincere people who love Jesus. They hear the account of the gospel. They understand it, and they say, I believe it. And so first, how can you have this hope? It's a sober-minded faith. You have to believe. But I think the second answer to how you can have this hope is through a personal encounter with Jesus. You have this hope through a personal encounter with Jesus. And in these 18 verses of the Easter story, Jesus does not appear until verse 14. The first part is all about the disciples finding the empty tomb. You're like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And then Mary comes upon Jesus and doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's a gardener. And the turning point of the whole passage is in verse 16, where it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary finally understood Easter when Jesus said her name. Mary understood the joy of Easter when Jesus said her name. And it's the same with you and me. We can only know the joy of Easter when we each personally hear Jesus say our names. I think it's amazing to me that Easter is, is such a vast hope about, it's the, about the renewal of all of nature and all of creation and heaven and earth. And it's about the intimate naming of a woman that Jesus says her name, Mary. It's so personal. And we have to know that those two things come together. The Lord of heaven and earth comes and says our name to us. And so how can you have the joy of Easter? You must hear Jesus call you, you by name. And you might say, well, how do I know that Jesus is calling my name? Well, it's an inner work of the Holy Spirit to call someone to Jesus. And you know what's happening when you respond the way Mary does. What does she say? You are my teacher. I don't trust in my own wisdom. 
I don't trust in my own goodness. I don't even trust running my own life. I'm lost. You are my master, and I love you, and I trust you. I want to follow you. It's humility and love. And when when humility and love for Jesus are stirring in you, you know it is the Holy Spirit. So maybe you sense Jesus is calling you today. Maybe you've heard about the joy of Easter, how Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. And you feel that opening your eyes to the wonder of the world you are living in, as well as making you long for the world to be made new. Maybe you are relieved to know that this joy is for those who feel on the outside, the marginalized, those ignored by the world because you feel that way. This is the Holy Spirit calling you. Believe. And like Rich Struts in the emergency room on his darkest day, you too will have a joy in the deepest place of your soul that nothing in heaven and earth can take away from you. The joy of the risen Jesus that will be with you forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you. This truth that death could be reversed, that the world could be made new, that our body of death could die with Jesus and we could be renewed in him is is such a hope. It's so wild and beyond our imagination. But Lord, you have made this world. You are wild and unimaginable. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to believe to rest, and and Lord, that this joy would be forming in each one of us in the deepest places of our souls, way down deep in us. And that we would treasure this hope, and and Lord, we pray that that Jesus would, we would hear him calling our names. We would know his personal love for us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. When we respond to this good news by...